pretty much everyone is talking about the stock market. How far down will it go? Will it crash? But stocks are not the main asset of most Americans. Rather, it's the equity in their homes. Housing prices have risen in the United States probably on average every year except one between 1940 and the present until until 2006, and then it, then it fell off for several years, and then it came back up. Since the depression, we we have like recessions every three to seven years, something like that. What's really been unusual in the United States for the last since 1980 is that we've had a lot fewer recessions than we did in the earlier periods. Actually, national banks were not allowed to make loans on real estate, so most of the loans were being made by either state banks, state state sponsored banks, or not state sponsored but state regulated banks, and by life insurance companies and groups like that. And so the typical mortgage was like a five-year mortgage. On a home? On a home or on a farm or all sorts of things like that. And so that typically happened. That's a big balloon payment. All that is a big balloon payment. Okay. And so they're documenting the the presence of this enormous amount of segregation. And also, and and the descriptions or whatever, their area descriptions include things like infiltration. So they use the language. And the interesting feature of the maps is it turns out that the HLC leaders decide that these maps are going to be pretty controversial, and so we're going to keep them confidential. We'll only use them, we'll only let people inside the government see them. Did you know that in 1968, the U.S. government explicitly declared that Fannie Mae is not a government agency and is not backed by the U.S. government? And the trouble was that no one really believed them. As evidence, due to public pressure and pressure from Congress, from both parties, by the way, in the late 1970s, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were both forced to change their policy of only backing high-quality loans to expanding their program and backing lower-quality loans that, of course, had much higher risks. In 2004, Alan Greenspan, who was then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, testified before Congress about the serious systemic financial risks that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac represented. Not too long after that, we had the subprime mortgage crisis that contributed to the 2007-2008 global financial meltdown, which was the Great Recession that we all lived through. Hey there, news peelers. Today's September 30th, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it.
The Fed is increasing interest rates to tame inflation, and this is profoundly impacting housing. For example, a Wall Street Journal article from a few days ago featured this headline, Home Prices Suffer First Monthly Decline in Years. Another Wall Street Journal article reported that the number of newly listed homes fell by 20% in September. This is mainly because would-be home sellers suddenly don't want to sell their current homes, which have low mortgage interest rates, to instead buy a new home with a new mortgage that carries a much higher interest rate. Makes sense, right? Another recent Wall Street Journal article talked about laptop landlords. This term refers to small investors who buy distant rental properties, some out of state, site unseen, tenants unmet. They just rely on a local property manager to send them monthly rent checks. These individual investors were attracted to and active in the market due to increasing home prices and lower mortgage rates. So, we have homeowners, home buyers, renters, bankers, mortgage brokers, property investors, large and small, all looking at mortgage interest rates. Which makes me wonder, what's going to happen now that interest rates are rising? To better understand the history of housing in America, its booms and busts, and the history of home mortgage industry, such as how did Americans buy homes, say, 100 years ago? How did they qualify? Were there credit reports? To better understand this history and much more, I spoke with Dr. Price Fishback, an APS professor of economics at Eller College of Management in the University of Arizona. Dr. Fishback is also a research affiliate at the Center for Economic History at Australian National University, a Cage Fellow at Warwick University, a Program Scholar for the Hoover Program on Regulation and the Rule of Law, a Fellow at the TIAA Kreff Institute, and a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, which most of us know as MBER. He's the author of many articles and peer-reviewed publications, as well as several books, including Well Worth Saving, How the New Deal Safeguarded Home Ownership, and also Government and the American Economy, A New History. In this episode, we also talk about the controversial history of a U.S. government agency, the HOLC, that some blame for institutionalizing housing segregation. Dr. Fishback and his team are conducting an extensive and ongoing research on this subject, and he describes here how the history of HOLC is misunderstood. To learn more about Dr. Fishback, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Fishback and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Fishback, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's start our discussion by getting some definitions out of the way. Um, is there a definition for a real estate bubble? <laughs> Let me put some yeah. context into that. For example, you know, you have a bear market, it's generally 20% down, that's, you know, or 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 a recession, the MBER, with, with which you're affiliated, has a specific definition for that. So how about a real estate bubble? Yes, that, that's, you know, real estate bubbles are really difficult because people disagree on this. Um, really? I'd rather, I'd rather talk, in a lot of ways, I'd rather talk about booms and busts and, and things because... Okay, let's do that. Kind of a, a notion of a real estate bubble is somehow the price is just jumping way beyond what its true value is. 
And so therefore the bubble's got to burst to get back to the true value. So isn't that one definition? That, that is a definition. So that, that would be probably the one I look, I would use most commonly. Okay. The question is, is what is the true value? <laughs> that's, that's what causes the issue <laughs> about the bubble to be so important. So think about this. People talked about the early 2000s, the real estate bubble that kind of got pricked in 2008. Okay. Right. And so like in Phoenix. That was right, one burst of a bubble. Yeah, well, in Phoenix, it, it, the, if you start with a house that it was worth $100,000 in 2000, in 2006, it was selling for $260,000. Nice equity there. Yeah, exactly. And so, and, and this was true in several places like, you know, out, out West, Florida, Texas, it was pretty much limited to those kind of areas. And then everything fell. And by 2010 or whatever, I think Phoenix was down. That same house was probably down to about 120,000. Jeez, Louise. But in 2018, it's it's sold for more than 260 again. So, what was the true value? You know, that that's the big question. Is that you know, 10 years later, I mean, it's it's selling for almost the same price as it did at the peak, but you went through this big rise and then this fall, and then it, and then it came back up again. So that's what's tricky about bubbles. I think that. The tulip bubbles that they talk about in the Netherlands back in the 1600s and things like that seem much more like a bubble in the sense that, you know, how do you value what a tulip's worth and things? And so these tulips were like artwork back then, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And still are today. And so the Ottoman Empire used to buy it from It seems like a bubble at the time, maybe is, is just a temporary, you know, bust and then it starts back up again. And that seems to be true in the stock market as well. So you said you rather speak about booms and busts. Are there different definitions or do we cover it in, in the last? I think we did. Well, so essentially the boom and the bust means that you're talking about rises and falls. Yeah. And we're yeah. not trying to identify what the true value is in these kind of things and trying to compare it to that true value. I think that's what makes it, it makes it cleaner for someone to talk about because it's hard to assess what the true value is. That's uh, true. If, if, if So that that's why people disagree. Now, most people like to talk about bubbles. And I've got friends who have done laboratory experiments with bubbles. And <laughs> the what do you do that? As in real estate bubbles or other sorts of bubbles? Well, they tried it, you know, just that's kind of like a stock market bubble. So Vernon Smith, who was my colleague for a long time, he's a Nobel Prize winner in economics. And he ran these experiments and they had this asset and people were they bid the price up really high and then and then it would fall apart. And people said, well, the only reason that's happening because it's University of Arizona students. Okay. And so, <laughs> so Vernon goes out and go, goes to a bunch of stockbrokers stockbrokers, and raises the stake so that it's meaningful for them, right? Uh -huh. Puts it in there and they had the biggest bubble of everybody. <laughs> so that was lovely story. So it's not just Arizona State University. Um, no, University students. of Arizona. I, I apologize. Yes, <laughs> University of Arizona. I misspoke. Um, so having discussed all of this are we in a bubble now or yeah i yeah god it seems like everything just rapidly went up so fast i mean sort of know, pl plateauing for now seems like but it's plateauing a little bit but that's because you know think think about what was going on yeah we were in the middle of the of the, the covid crisis all sorts of people are thinking oh you know i don't you know i'm living at home and i'm working from home and they're letting me work from home and I can move and I can I can live in a lot cheaper place and commute to, to California mm -hmm. from Tucson or someplace like that or Boise and places like this. And so 
suddenly there's this big demand for housing in all these smaller cities that are great cities to live in and things like this. And so that's kind of risen, raised things a lot. There's virtually no building going on at the time. And you know, these people got a lot of money and, and a lot of them are coming out of California where you, know, you sell your house in California and it's three times as valuable as the house in, in Tucson. And so you walk in, oh, oh no problem. <laughs> I can pay. My, my, my cousins moved from San Francisco to uh, outskirts of Provo, Utah and bought two homes and rented out one. <laughs> I mean, that's what you do. You know, in uh, preparation, last night, uh, in preparation for our conversation, I was looking at... Uh, at the Federal Reserve economic data, the FRAD that you shared with me earlier. Yeah. It's the S&P Case-Shiller National Home Price Index graph. Yeah. Looking at it, I see that home prices are really high now. In fact, historically high. Am I interpreting this graph oh, correctly? Yeah. No, that's correct. So what they're doing is, is they're actually trying to come close to to looking at a house that is the same house as it was as valuing the same house. So average prices have a problem in that, you know, they're have all sorts of different qualities of houses in the average price. Yeah. So they're using a resale index so that they can get an idea of the same house. What how is it valued like two years later and things like that? But you know, generally housing prices, if you look at them in, in you know just nominal terms without adjusting for inflation, housing prices have risen in the United States probably on average, every year except one between 1940 and the present until until 2006. And then it, then it fell off for several years and then it came back up. But so a typical person, you know, the, the standard thing when I when my parents were going up and, and when they, they started working and when I started working was, well, of course, you should buy a house because a house you can live in the house and then you're going to get capital gains on the house. It's going to become more valuable over time. And it's a really good investment. And so, and in, in the only in the only year before 2006, the house prices fell on average, is around 1972. This is before the Case Shiller one shows up, and then 2006 we have that big drop off, like I talked about in Phoenix in these various areas. So most years, wherever house prices are going up, and so people are seeing this pretty good. And most years, not all, they beat inflation rates too. And so you, you get to live in the house at the same time as the value of the house is rising. Now it's not rising as fast as the stock market on average, but the stock market's fluctuating hugely, even though the yeah. stock market, the average rate of return is something like 7% in the stock market over the last 60 years. Speaking of fluctuating, um, I was studying another graph you shared, graph you shared with me. Uh, it depicts house price growth rate. Right. From 1964 to now, and you've added some valuable notes uh, about earlier periods in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, this is this is not a pretty picture. Uh, for example, based on this graph, I'll just pick one one point. If I bought a home, say in 1968, uh -huh. and I needed to sell it for my college kid or whatever, you know, kid in college in 1970 or 74. I was hurting, right? Because it just well, a little bit. So, but like, so the house now you have to compare relative to inflation. So, in just nominal terms, without adjusting for inflation, house prices have gone up almost every single year. Relative to inflation, there have been some downturn periods. So, there, like the early seventies was one. Okay, but the, most of the time, I mean, just nominal house prices go up, and it just depends on the timing. It's like everything else. If you buy into the stock market, you can buy into the stock market at the wrong time. 
Yeah, yeah. But if you're able to buy in the stock market in a normal year and just let it ride for a long period of time, you're going to average about 7% per year. So uh, let me say one more thing about that. But if you bought a bunch of stock in 2008 and then watched the stock market drop by 55%, that was not a good experience. (laughs) It was not. That's when you fire your financial advisor. If they're not already fired from their job. You can't even fire the financial advisor because he's already jumped off a building. (laughs) Exactly. That was a bad period in 2008. Um, So you're saying that home prices have increased since 1940 with two exceptions that you identified. One was 1972. The other one is 2006. Um, and 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 I look at the cyclicality of growth rate and I'm just wondering... Do booms always follow? Well, does a boom always follow with a bust? Or I I guess I need some clarity. Do we have periods in which your house value just inches higher slowly and slowly? Yeah, that's generally the average. And so the average is like that, but they're going to have fluctuations and it's going to go Look, we have business cycles, right? So yeah. we go through periods where GDP falls, we have higher unemployment. Some of them are extraordinarily severe. I spend most of my time studying the Great Depression. And the Great Depression was a total disaster. 25% unemployment. Housing values dropped 40% between 1927 and 1933, somewhere in that neighborhood. So it was a total disaster. But most of the time, you kind of go up. Since the Depression... We, we have like recessions every three to seven years, something like that, which really been unusual in the United States for the last since 1980 is that we've had a lot fewer recessions than we did in the earlier periods. Fewer so, recessions. 1982, 1984, we had a recession in 1990, another one around 2000, 2009, 10, and then the COVID recession. That. If you look at those runs of time where things were expanding, those are like four of the of the longest expansions in American history, four out of the top six. And, you know, we had this expansion going on. People talked about slow growth coming out of the Obama administration and as we were recovering from 2009. But even that, that we actually had the longest recovery in, in, in increases in American history. Uh, oh, wow. So we don't seem to be fluctuating as much as we did before. I'm not sure why. I mean, I'd like to think that economists have gotten smarter. And we do <laughs> it, I don't know. <laughs> inflation is transitory. Got, inflation is transitory. Every time we think we've got it licked, where we're, you know, we, we pay a hefty penalty. So we thought we had it licked in the 60s and then stagflation showed up in the 70s. So. Yeah. Uh, which makes you wonder what's next. Um, you mentioned the Great Depression. Uh, just pique my curiosity. I'm just wondering, uh, are there any examples of housing crash in our history that stand out for you? Well, that was a big crash. How, yeah, how big? How big of a crash was it, real well, estate speaking? So the unemployment, like I said, the unemployment rate went up by t- to 25%. We were over 20% unemployment for four years. Our output, total output in the economy fell by about a third in a typical year. And so it was It was basically like in 1932 and 1933, you just cut off the Western United States and that's how much output we were producing. Oh, wow. In terms of home, home values and stuff, there had been a rapid expansion in lending activity and home building in the 20s. Part of that was response to World War I. Just during World War I and also again in World War II, we built virtually nothing. 
because we were fighting wars. Yeah, yeah. And spending all the money. And so that partly was that, but also, you know, Florida had a big boom and that that, that probably came close to being a bubble. Um, and Florida had a big boom and then things just started falling apart. And if, if we don't fully understand the depression, um, I've been studying it for a long time and people have a lot of different opinions about what's going on. If I actually had the true answer, uh, it'd be awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> didn't didn't uh, Chairman Bernanke actually do his treatise on? Uh, he did. He wrote he depression. wrote a series of papers on the Great Depression, um, some very interesting ones. And so he's he's a well known scholar of the Great Depression. And one of the things he promised when he was the Fed chair was that he 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 argued that Milton Friedman had this story. He, he and Anna Schwartz had this story about restrictions on the money supply and slow money su supply growth and, and actually reductions had contributed a great deal to the Great Depression. So basically the Fed messed up. The Fed messed up. It was a yeah. teenager. What could you expect? It, was, you know, <laughs> it really was a teenager. So in 1913, you're right. Yeah. It was formed in 1913. So what do, what do teenagers know, right? Okay. So what did Bernanke say about that? So Bernanke said, so he was at Milton Friedman's 100th birthday party. And he said, <laughs> Milton... I understand your research convinced me or whatever. We will never let this happen again. And so in 2008, 2009, I mean, Bernanke actually did a lot to pour a lot of liquidity into the system to, to try to prevent it from falling apart too much. And so particularly in that period in September of 2008, when everything was just, you know, Lehman Brothers fails and they have to buy out AIG and have to do all these other kind of things. They do a lot in that three or, three or four month period to kind of maintain the stability of the economy and, and maintain the asset base for, for the lenders and all the other people who are, who are in action. Otherwise, we'd have had another great depression. That, that's what he was worried about. And yeah. so now I have some bones to pick about how long we kept jacking money into the system. <laughs> so because we kept QE, quantitative easing one and quantitative easing two, and so we kept doing it. So I'm a little worried about where we are now. We kind of ran in a big... Wait, experiment. are you talking about now? Or are you referring to the 2008 to 2010 period? Well, so what I'm talking about there is, is that after 2010, uh -huh. people talked about that growth was not as fast as a typical recovery. And so what the Fed did was actually continue to pour money into the system. So they had quantitative easing one and two and three, where they just continued to increase the money supply faster than you normally would have thought. And so that was a pretty big experiment because usually you don't do that in the middle of a in the middle of an expansion. Yeah. And so, um, and that that's influence. That, the one thing is, but we're talking about housing. This is all influencing housing because yeah. it's determining. But we didn't have inflation back then. We didn't have much inflation, and so that's why they felt comfortable doing it. But one of the things is think about interest rates. I mean, so the interest rates they drove short-term interest rates down basically towards zero. And it was even weirder in Europe. You have negative interest rates on some, yeah. on some things. And so and to think about one of the things that was stimulating the housing, housing, the rise in housing was that we had after rate. the Great Recession. After the, the Great Recession, yeah, one of the, the things that was stimulating housing. was the interest rate for a long term mortgage for a 30 year mortgage fell to four percent, then down to three. I have a good friend who got two and a half percent on his house just before COVID hit. Not uh, bad. Hey, well, us too. Yeah. I mean, particularly uh, when I played, I paid 10 back in 1990 when I first moved and, here. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, we'll be right back after a short break to talk about what Dr. Fishback was just saying, history of home mortgages. As we talk about homes and home mortgages, 
the backdrop that we cannot ignore is rising inflation. Earlier this year, one of my guests said something that stuck with me. That events such as pandemics, oil shocks, and wars in and of themselves don't cause inflation to skyrocket. Rather, it's our government's response to these events that rocket inflation. That was Dr. White, who took us through the history of inflation and banking. And of course, when it comes to busting inflation, we all think of the Federal Reserve. Prize-winning historian and former Wall Street Journal financial reporter Mr. Lowenstein spoke with me about the history of America's economy before we had the Fed, and he juices up this history by explaining how the Fed was created in secrecy and subterfuge. Regardless of how it was created, the Fed is a mighty powerful institution, particularly when it comes to currency. In fact, many countries around the world are hurting now that the dollar is at a historic high. Is at parity with the euro and the British pound, but the power of the Fed and the global impact of a strong dollar has a long history. For example, in 1971, the U.S. Secretary of Treasury famously said, "The dollar is our currency, but it's your problem." Dr. Eichen Green recently explained this history in our program. The links to these previous conversations are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now. Let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Fishback. Dr. Fishback, I found myself staring in disbelief at one of the graphs you sent me. But are you sure this is correct? I mean, this interest rate is like usury. It's it's a uh, in 1983. Uh, we're looking at 30-year fixed-rate mortgage of. Gosh, this is like eighteen percent. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We had big wow. inflation back then. Wow. So you know, basically, when you have inflation, what the it's going to get beat, put into the interest rate. Okay, so there's just no other way around it. One of the things that's been really interesting in the last ten years has been the short-term interest rates been really low, and inflation rates have been higher than the short-term interest rates. So you actually, in real terms, you're actually losing money. When you're investing in these short-term instruments, wait. Say that again, please. Say that so again. So what what was going on was is that the interest rate, say the short-term Treasury bill rate was like one percent for a one-year Treasury bill. Okay. So like you're not 2015. talking. You're not talking about the ten-year T bill. No, I'm talking about okay. the one year. Okay. So 2000 and in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, all down around one percent. This is the one-year T bill. Okay. okay. So just it comes due at the end of the year. Okay. They're paying one percent interest, but the inflation rate's two, two and a half, and so you're actually the value of what you're getting in return is actually falling because the in real terms in purchasing power because the inflation is going faster than the than the interest rate. Well, I understand that part, but how does that relate to the interest rate on your home loan? Well, because okay, the interest rate on the home loan is a much longer loan. Yeah. Okay, and so therefore the interest rates on that are typically much higher. Yeah. Okay, and so in, if you're a borrower and you're borrowing at a high interest rate, high inflation helps you because you're paying back money that's less valuable than what you borrowed. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and so and so typically the ten the thirty year mortgage rate is going to be typically much substantially higher than inflation because you, you're worried about well what's going to happen to inflation over this whole thirty year period. You've got a fixed rate, you know, big worries about this. And so in the 70s, you know, we had this big mess because we had problems with inflation 
this is what led into the 18% interest rate you were talking about in the, in the early 1980s. Yeah. We, we had these situations where uh, OPEC was raising gasoline prices. And so they doubled the gasoline price in the early 70s, and then they doubled it again. Okay, so oil prices, they play a big role because they're a big chunk of what's going on in the economy. Yeah. Right? And so, and the Federal Reserve was accommodating this by increasing the money supply to allow that to continue. And so as the money supply went up, the inflation rate was going up. And so the only way a lender is going to be willing to, to give you a loan is they're going to raise the raise their lending rate higher than what the inflation rate is going to be. And so the inflation rate's like 12 or 13% in early in the early 1980s. And so what they're doing is just saying, okay, well, we're worried about future inflation being that high, maybe even higher, higher. So we're going to charge you 18% for this loan. Some of that compares to what's happening now. Oil uh, gas prices at the pump have gone up. Uh, inflation is inching up. Um, the Fed is ratcheting back their um, bond buying program, right? Mm -hmm. They're not, they're not, and, and they're trying to actually decrease the supply by increasing interest rate. Right. Is that correct? Um, so all essentially this what they're doing is a little bit, everybody talks about them setting the interest rate. It's actually, they're buying and selling bonds in the market to, to adjust that interest rate. They just got it down to the point where they can say, we're, we're adjusting this interest rate, but they're really doing it by buying and selling bonds. I so see. right now they're selling a lot of bonds. You know, we're talking about mortgages and in jest, I asked you if your graph is correct at 18% <laughs> interest rate. I'm just, this, this may come across as a silly question, Dr. Fishback, but I'll ask it anyway. Has, has America always had a mortgage industry? Oh how yeah. Did, how did like, I don't know, a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, whenever, how did you buy a home? Well, people borrow. Uh, now, mm -hmm. a lot of times, from banks. We have banks originally. Uh, they also would borrow from friends, you know. So it's it's not and, and life insurance companies and a variety of other people. So it depends on the period you're talking about. Yeah. Why don't we talk start the after the Civil War? So rather okay, than deeper deeper into what's going. Sure, on. sure. So typically, what a, an often a loan, you know, a lot of people were farmers, and so you were buying farmland or buying a house and doing things like this. Um, and that actually national banks were not allowed to make loans on real estate. So most of the loans were being made by either state banks, state, state sponsored banks, or not state sponsored, but state regulated banks, and by life insurance companies and groups like that. And so the typical mortgage was like a five-year mortgage. And what you did was you, you just paid the principal back, and not you just paid the interest back on the mortgage. So say you borrowed a thousand dollars and your interest rate was 10%. What you would do is in year one, you'd pay back, you'd pay 10%. You just pay the interest on the loan. Year two, you pay the interest of 10. Three, pay the 10. Four, pay 10. In five, you pay the interest of 10. And then you're supposed to pay back the, the $1,000 that you, that you borrowed originally. On a home? On a home or on a farm or all sorts of things like that. And so that, now that's, what typically happened. That's a big balloon payment. All that is a big balloon payment. Okay. And wow. so what typically happened is, is a lot of times people might make a partial payment to reduce the size of the loan and roll the loan over. And so even though it starts out as a five-year loan, it might end up by the time they finally finish and pay, they might have rolled it over a couple of times. And so they finished paying it off in year 15. Um, and, and let's say, you know, in, in the old days, let's say post-Civil War or any, any period you want to pick, could Americans 
walk away from their homes? Uh, it depends on the state laws, because even now it depends on the state as to whether you can walk away from your home or not. Oh, it's not uniform across the it's nation. It's not uniform. Now, so the key is is whether you can walk away and not still owe the loan. That's that's the key situation. Okay, you can always walk away from the house, and then the of question course. is, are you going to be able to pay the loan? Well, that was that was implicit in my question. You know, right. uh, for example, uh, I know people here in California, and that in two thousand five, two thousand six, have had bought investment property in Phoenix, in fact. Right. And they just let it go. And you and that's the typical situation where you're going to see that. So in most cases, whatever, if you're living in the house and stuff, you're probably not going to walk away from the mortgage. Of, of course. But if you're using it as investment property and you have a non-recourse loan, that's what they describe it as. If you if you have a, a non-recourse loan, then you can walk away. And what you've just done is you've given people the house. Exactly. Has this been the case over... Let's say the 20th century. Was there ever like the debtors, debtors prison or anything for no, home mortgage? Prison. They got rid of that a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, during they the could go time. bankrupt. That that's the way you typically got out. Of that's it. how they do it. Yeah. Um, we we talked about interest rates. I'm wondering what was it like before we had a central bank, the Federal Reserve. Well, you had a, you had a market who's, who's, for interest rates. Uh, and okay. so the interest rates varied across the country, like in the early, like say around the 1880s or so, something like that. The interest rates varied a lot across the country. And so one of the reasons was, is that, you know, a lot of times you have like insurance companies, they may have an agent out there making loans on farms and things like this. There's also building and loans, which were local, local lenders. And mm -hmm. I'll come back to that in a sec. Um, and so what happens is the, the more risk there is in the loan and the harder it is to kind of to monitor what's going on in the loan, typically the higher the interest rate. So what you found was is in frontier areas, the interest rates were much higher than what you paid in, say, New York City on these loans. And partly it was a combination of, well, there's a lot more risk as what's happening out in the frontier. When you and say also, risk, Dr. Fishback, are you talking about <clears throat> risk due to the to the to the borrower or risk because of the situation? area in which the property is in because well, back then we did it's really risk being accepted by both because you know you're starting a farm or you're starting in this new area you don't really know what's going on in the area at this time so the borrowers taking some risk by investing in this location mm -hmm. the lender is taking a risk by lending to the person who's trying to to make these purchases and, and build up these things and so riskiness if, if you're if there's a lot of possible fluctuations and there's a significant chance that think that the investment might fail and that would be, make it more risky. And so typically charge higher interest rates. Did they have any sort of credit rating systems on the borrowers, let's say after the Civil War, you know, in the early oh, yeah. 20th century? So well, on specific individual borrowers, it's not clear. I mean, it would, it would just be like what you'd expect a normal lender to do is to sit down and kind of look at the people and see what they're doing. Doesn't Brad's in the old days, they didn't have DocuSign. <laughs> That's definitely true. So... <laughs> And so what you had was like Dun & Bradstreet evaluated all the various individual firms around the United States and yeah. small producers and things like that. And so what you have was is that, you know, you just have the local banker paying attention to what's going on in the, to, to the people around them. An insurance, an insurance company would have a mortgage agent or whatever who might live in the town or live in the area and try to learn about each of the individuals. And so they find out all sorts of stuff about people and figure out whether or not they thought it was worth making a loan. Oh, it was much more personal. Oh yeah, much more personal because yeah, if you could you, and so even now it's much simpler now in a lot of ways because 
people have credit scores and they have all these other kind of things because people are much more involved in financial markets than they were in the say the late 1800s and things. Yeah. So one um, of the most interesting features, and this this is the uh, a lot of people don't realize this. You know, I talked about the balloon payment. The balloon payment loan that was the typical that was a common mortgage, and typically yeah. banks and um, life insurance companies and mortgage companies typically did that kind of thing. There was also the building and loan. And so the building and loan was a community was a kind of a community organization. You know, in the it's a wonderful life, Jimmy Stewart. And yeah, and yeah. Oh, about yeah. The, yeah. The it's the building and loan, right? And so what the how the building and loan operated, they still have a lot of these in Britain and, and a lot of these around the world. Less so for us. What you did was you borrowed the money, and then to help pay back the principal, what you did was you invested in the building and loan. So what you do is you borrow the loan, say it's due in 10 years. And then what you do is every month you pay the interest, but also you would make a payment that invested in the building and loan. So you became an owner of the building and loan. It's like a credit union in a sense. So it's it, so you're a part owner. When you accumulated enough, well, so, and then on that investment, they paid out dividends. And so when you accumulated enough to pay off the loan, then what you did was you paid off the loan and then you're no longer an owner of the building alone. But while you're a borrower, you are a, an owner of the building alone as well. So you have this really kind of interesting relationship here. You've got some people who just go ahead and invest, right? Yeah. But all the borrowers are owners as well. And so the typical, the path for this was, is that typically most of these loans lasted about 10 to 12 years because that's about how long it took to pay off the principal. During those to earn enough to pay off. So that means you had higher payments, but part of that payment was going towards uh, investing in building and loan. Right. And, and so what's going in is that part of that payment is designed to put you in a position to pay off the, it's helping you save to pay off the balloon payment at the end. Did, did, did the borrower who invested some of his or her uh, monthly mortgage payments and building and loan know what the building and loan was investing the money in? Well, they were investing in mortgages because that was their whole goal was to was to create mortgages. And so the initial building and loans, when they first get started, people are getting together and saying, OK, we need to help people make get get a loan to start to build the house. And so, well, who's going to be the first person to get the loan? Right. Yeah. Well, you had a lottery. And so whoever won the lottery was the first person to get the loan. And then as they as the building alone expanded, they got more and more people involved. And so but you have like a thousand people or, or 50,000 people all owing money and also being an owner of the building alone. This sort of brings the com I know this is off topic, but it sort of brings the community together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so when most of these were local. Uh, and so they tended to focus on local local places. And they actually were pretty successful. They actually went through a lot of downturns and stuff without actually failing because because basically failing means that you're not paying off every month. Yeah. The problem that they ran into, and this is why they kind of fell apart in the 1930s, was that in the 30s, people were, were you know, they were trying, oh, my God, you know, I don't have any money. I'm not surviving. It's the Great Depression. Yeah. And so they're hoping that they're hoping to cash out of the building alone, but the building alone has all the money out of all these loans and so they can't pay them. And so they actually hold there and actually they have the right as part of the contract not to help people buy out if it's going to hurt the help hurt the building and loan. So you get these frozen building and loans that are kind of sitting there just kind of 
working their way through the mortgages and not able to, to pay out everybody until they actually finish the loan and stuff. So that causes a big change. And um, they switch to the savings and loan. And, and that savings and loan, we had a, we had a, a real estate crisis. In oh, savings yeah. And loan so in the savings and loan, what you did was, you, you know, people deposited money in the savings and loan. And then you got this, you got mortgages. And, they, and their primary goal was to make mortgages. And then in the 70s, late 70s, they kind of opened it up so that, to allow them to invest in more things. And they took a lot more risk. And so a number of building and loans failed. <laughs> so we have still, we've got another savings and loans. Savings and loans, yes. Savings and loans. Another savings and loans failed. And so that was another crisis. We had a bailout. Government government had a bailout. And um, were savings and loans also local? Thing. What's that? Were savings and loans also local? They tended to be. Yeah. Yeah. So people probably in bigger cities just went to, you know, Wells Fargo's and BFA's. Well, or, or they would go to the, or, or savings and loan. There are a lot of savings and loans all you know around the country. And so it just depended on what you're going. So commercial banks weren't really designed to at the time in the, in the 70s from 1933 to 1970. They weren't really designed very much for, for making uh, long term loans like that because you're supposed to be able to get your cash. The typical savings and loan thing said that you could take cash out maybe three times a year. Whereas the commercial bank, you know, you're supposed to be able to take cash out all the time. And so there was a mismatch. If you, yeah. if you made a lot of real estate loans, there was a mismatch between this long time for the mortgage and being able to pay out money immediately when people demand it. We'll be back after a short break to talk about what role, or I guess more precisely roles, our government plays in real estate. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Fishback, when did the U.S. government get involved in real estate? Well... <laughs> They start out involved pretty early. How yeah, early? Well, well, from the very beginning, because they own a lot of land, right? Yeah, you, yeah. You go out and buy the Louisiana Purchase, you own a ton of land. And so they, they were like a real estate agent for the first 60, 100 years. And so they'd be out there just selling land. Actually, they, they raised a lot of money by selling land. Um, and yet they went through all sorts of things. That The, the amounts that they would receive started to go down quite a bit when they passed the Homestead Act in 1862, because then you could go out and you could live on the land for five to seven years and just pay a small cash payment. And then as long as you, you use the land, you were able to uh, to get the land without having to pay a large amount. But they, yeah, they were, they were selling land for a long, long time. Has our government's involvement in real estate been for the better, you think? Well, I say the, the original thing, I think for the for this first part, I think it's really good because what they did was they distributed all this land out to people who, you know, it's a, it's a market society and you want people to have ownership and we're a large, large scale ownership society to a large extent. 
And so by, by selling the land out, we gave it to all these people and let the individuals decide how they were going to use it in various ways. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I think that's very much a good thing. And so the so they don't really get involved in heavily regulating real, real estate until later. Now, one thing they, did, they do do is that when they passed the National Banking Act in the, in the 1860s during the Civil War, that's when they created these national banks that would issue greenbacks and moved away from the old system. One of the things they did was they actually stopped the, the national banks from making real estate loans. And so they... And so anybody that was a large scale bank that was in a national banking system was not allowed to make real estate loans directly. Why is that? Get some stuff indirectly. Well, I think they were worried about real estate booms and busts because you had real estate prices yeah. booming and busting during that time frame. Now they, they loosened that up in the 1920s. So the, the real the real introduction of the government into regulating things with, with respect to mortgages and stuff occurred in the 1930s under the New Deal in response to the Great Depression. So as I think I told you earlier that, you know, housing prices just totally fell apart. I mean, they were down 40, 30, depending on what area of the country you're talking about, 30 to 50 percent between 1927 and 1933. There are all sorts of people having trouble paying, paying back their loans. So you have large numbers of foreclosures and things like this. And so the federal government gets involved to try to stop that. And so do they, the way do, they, they do, do that by lending uh, more to these people? Well, so what they did, they, they, took, they took multiple steps, actually. Um, one of the things they did was they created the Federal Home Loan Bank Board in 1932. The idea behind that was to make loans to lenders to try to keep them from failing. Kind of like a backstop to lenders? Kind of like a backstop. It's kind of like the role the Federal Reserve was, was supposed to play. It didn't play very <laughs> well. didn't play, on. yeah. But plays much better now. Um, but that wasn't that didn't really have much of an effect. So the the big change they made in 1933 was they established the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and the Homeowners Loan Corporation was they created a corporation that would buy mortgages that were in really bad shape, that were just about to fail. And the key was they were supposed to buy mortgages that were in trouble through no fault of the borrower. You know, the borrower lost his job or, or her job and, and all sorts of problems. They were sick or things like this. And so they bought these really troubled loans and then and then they refinanced them for the borrower. And so this, this has two effects. One is, is that for the lender, they've actually replaced all these really bad loans on the lender's books. And so this opens up the possibility for the lenders to make more loans again, because now they've got good loans on the books instead of bad loans. Yeah, and the lender is not about to fail either. Well, well, a lot of the lenders were in danger of failing. That's one yeah. of the reasons they did this. Um, and then they refinanced the loans, and what they did was they um, they charged everybody four and a half percent interest at a time when interest rates were much higher, and then they extended the times of the loans. And so they they actually did what's more like a modern mortgage, where you have the, the standard payment every month that includes some principal and some interest. And so they really bailed out both sides of the, bar, of the market. And so they bought and they bought and, and refinanced a million loans, which was a very large segment of the, of the society. Especially back then, that's huge. How I'm wondering, what are the ro roles of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? I want to ask this before I forget. Well, let me, I'll roll into that because there are awesome. the two or three things that's going to follow up with this. Sure. 
So the other agency that they create is the Federal Housing Administration. FHA. FHA. And the FHA is designed to, their primary goal, they have two. One was they would, would uh, back uh, rehabilitation loans for homes. And so if you, if you were trying to fix up your home and things like that, the FHA would come in and they say, okay, look, we'll guarantee 20, 20% of that loan. But the big program was, is that they went in and they guaranteed mortgages. And so what they did was they insured mortgages for the lender. And so if the, if the loan failed, then the FHA would take the hit instead of the lender. And so what that meant was, is that the lender could charge lower interest rates because they were backed by the FHA. Less risk. Less risk. And the, but the FHA was very careful. Uh, they were, they did not, they were very careful in what they backed. And so they typically were at the top end of the market for a long time. And they they were not getting into subprime loans or anything like that. Uh, no, no, they were, they were, they they were the classic conventional conservative loan, all sorts of things like that. And so, and they they played a huge role that the FHA and the veterans administration after the war, after world war II actually, you know, backed all sorts of loans or whatever and made it easier for people to get money because they did have lower interest rates. The, the other step they took was they created Fannie Mae. And what Fannie Mae's goal was, is to... Was this during the 1930s still? This or is 38, you... okay. 1938. So okay. what Fannie Mae did, its goal was to come in and... It, it's What they did was they purchased mortgages. Okay, and so... And by purchasing the mortgage, they would move it off the books of the lender, and the lender now has more cash that they can lend. And so they play a substantial role in creating a market for these FHA loans. And so typically what they would do is they would take what they have called conventional loans, which were kind of these standard loans, put 20% down, you get this interest rate, it's pretty clean, all these loans look just alike. And so what Fannie would do is they they would... purchase these loans and then they could they could package them up and sell them to other people as well. And so by package up you mean securitization of these loans? Securitization. Yeah. Okay. And so they play uh they play a pretty important role because they you know they're providing extra liquidity into the system so people can make more of course yeah 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 and then what happens is is that they're it's not clear exactly whether they're government guaranteed or not because it's a corporation. In 1968, they made it explicit that Fannie Mae was not a government court, it was not a government agency, and so it was not backed by the government. And but then it is no one believed it. <laughs> so, and then and part of the thing was is they put them on their own basis. You could buy shares in, in Fannie Mae and do all sorts of things like this. And then because they were worried that Fannie Mae would be a monopoly, they created Freddie Mac. To be a competitor in like right around 1971 or 72. Oh, that's interesting. And so those guys were out there. And so what they were doing is they were backing these, backing up these mortgages, or whatever. So they were they were and, and providing a market for the mortgages. And then what stat starts to happen is is that you know they're under a lot of pressure from a lot of people to to provide. They're really focusing on high quality loans and people with high incomes, high valued homes, and things like this. And they're constantly under pressure from people to to expand their, their purchases and to expand their activity in the FHA as well to provide more benefits for people at the lower end of the income distribution. 
And so you start in the late 70s, you're getting this pressure. And so they start making these moves where they move into uh, loans for lower income people with higher risk. And, uh, and, and so and there's pressure coming from Congress. And, and it's not just it's, it's both sides of the aisle, actually. So it's not, you know, Bill Clinton pushed for these kind of things. A uh, number of Republicans and also pushed for it because that was helpful in their community. Yeah. Yeah. George Bush supported this stuff as well, because George believed in an ownership society, George W. Bush. And so the goal was to you know, home ownership rates were around 63 percent from about. 1955 all the way to 1990 something. And their goal was to push for more people to go up. And so they actually, as a result of these changes, they actually raised the home ownership rate to about 69%. It's interesting that you say uh, Congress made a, a sort of a declaration or pronouncement, if you will, in 1968, that Fannie Mae is not a government entity, yet Congress is able to influence to whom they lend or, you know, how they should expand their lending program to cover oh, more Americans. I mean, yeah. They, they, they always have some influence, even if exactly. it's you know. Yeah. But they, they do have this kind of hazy, you know, feeling as to whether they're supported or not. And then we discovered, well, yes, indeed they were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fast forward. Um, let's take a break here. Stay yeah. with me and Dr. Fishback as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Fishback, I have here... A graph from you titled Home Ownership Rates for All Whites and Blacks from 1900 to 2021, so 121 years. It shows that white home ownership is about 30% higher than black home ownership um, in 2021. And this, this sort of differential, this delta has sort of continued from 1900 to now. Um, rather than analyzing this particular graph, I'm more interested in talking about the history specifically. Based on our prior conversation, uh, you shared with me that there's controversy over the practices of the HOLC, the Homeowners Loan Corporation. I'd love to know about that a little bit. Uh, I know there are terms such as redlining. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, please share with us. Oh, sure. So there, there has been a big controversy. So I remember I described to the, the HOLC and the FHA were the yes. two primary federal agencies in the 30s. And so what's happened is, is that one of the things that happened is the HOLC, after, pretty much after they finished all the refinancing activity, they go into this mode. They're working for the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, which is heavily involved with the savings. And We're still in the 1930s? We're in the 1930s. Okay. So it's around 1936. They've pretty much gotten, they finished up all their lending activity and refinancing activity. Okay. And so they're trying to learn. They've got a huge number of people working for them. And so rather than dump them on the street, they try to hold on to quite a few. So it's a big bureaucracy now, big organization. Pretty substantial, but you know okay. they 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 release people as they need to and stuff. But they 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 keep a number of people to try to analyze the housing markets around the United States. And so they go these huge city surveys that they do for like 250 cities around the country to try to understand 
what's happening with mortgage markets at the time. And so the surveys, actually the surveys, survey all the lenders and ask them about what kind of interest rates they charge and how many foreclosures and all sorts of things like that. But another thing they do is they try to understand the, the geography of the, of the real estate market at the time. And so they draw these maps and they collect these neighborhood descriptions and say, okay, well, what's determining the willingness for people to loan in these various neighborhoods? So they call these security maps. And the idea is to try to understand where are the high risk areas, where are the low risk areas? And so they draw all these maps and things. And this is really comprehensive. Oh, yeah. And so what they do now, you have to realize is what they're doing is they're drawing a picture of what the world looks like in 1936. And discrimination was very, was far more common back then than it is today. And yeah. so if you look, the levels of segregation in the cities were, were rising dramatically between 1900 and 1930 before the federal government gets involved. And so you have these very segregated neighborhoods. You just think about, you know, think about the towns you look at today. Or San Francisco's got Chinatown and Italian town and all sorts of things. Same with New York City. You yeah. tend to see all these people clustering. And also you, you see blacks in specific areas and, and you see Czechoslovakian refugees in one area and all sorts of things like that. And so you so have everything is segregated. Everything's segregated. Okay. And as a matter of fact, you you real estate professionals. Economists who study real estate markets, they're all talking about, well, you know, there's these worries wherever if uh, if poor people or some ethnic group moves into the neighborhood, there's a risk it's going to reduce the housing values and things like this. And so everybody's talking about these things. And so that's what the HLC maps document in 1936 in 30, 36 to 39 during their program. And so they're documenting the, the presence of this enormous amount of segregation. And also, and, they, and, they, and the descriptions or whatever, you know, their area descriptions include things like infiltration. So they use the language, are, are poor people or blacks or Italians infiltrating the neighborhood and things like this. So anyway, so what happens is, is that they create these maps. And the interesting feature of the maps is it turns out that the HLC leaders decide that these maps are going to be pretty controversial, and so we're going to keep them confidential. We'll only use them, we'll only let people inside the government see them. And so, do they think it's going to be controversial because it it disincentivizes? Uh, um, I don't know. It prevents a mixture of different races. Oh, yeah, it might and, incentivize redlining. If everybody's using these maps to decide how they're going to make loans, they might try to prevent people from moving across. There so are also it, reasons so, not to show this stuff. I see. So redlining means it comes from those maps. Well, it comes from, we're not sure exactly if it's those maps or a different set of maps created by the FHA. Okay. Okay. And so what's happened is, is that in the 1980s, someone, they, they, they declassified the maps, maps of the National Archives and people started looking at them and say, well, we heard the term redlining and the, and the, the lowest quality areas, the D areas, where, the, where there, they were less likely to lend were red. And so that, but they used the term redlining before that. Okay. Okay. So what's happened is, is a number of scholars, makes sense, including me and other people, whoever, have used these maps to try to look at what's going on going forward. And so what's the impact of segregation in the 1930s on what the world looks like today? Because it's going to take a long time for things to adjust, particularly for housing and things like this. And so the unfortunate thing is, is that a lot of people who've been using maps say, well, it was the HLC's fault that 
this gets gets created. They claim that the maps themselves force things to be the way that, that force the way that the, the segregation now looks today. I thought you said they were classified. Well, they were, and that's the problem. Is that you know some people have said, well, they're classified, but people must have seen them. So I've been working with a couple of researchers. They go to Mar-a-Lago or something. How do people see him? I've, I've been working with a couple of, well, so one of the things could be is that the HOLC created the maps. They're not really lending anymore, but the Federal Housing Administration is insuring people. And so the thought was, is that the FHA picked up these maps and they used them in the way that they're talking about. Okay, my view of the maps and my research team's view of the maps. So I've got people at the University of Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, uh, the Chicago Fed, University of North Carolina, Greensboro, Virginia, various groups around here, Bowden in, in, in Maine. And we've been looking at what they were doing. And so we found all that we, 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 we believe that they were classified and kept out of people's hands. Okay. And so, and what we believe that the maps do and what they literally say on the area descriptions is these are the views of leading real estate people at the time. And so what we think they're doing is they're documenting this just enormous amount of segregation that's going on at the time. And that that segregation, and if you have boundaries like railroad tracks and big sits, big roads and things like that, those things are going to kind of maintain neighborhoods pretty, pretty closely. Mm-hmm. And we also found all sorts of evidence of what the FHA was doing. And the FHA was the actual one who was making the, making the decisions. And so they collected their own maps. Was the HOLC still in business was it a still going entity so the HLC concern? was was taking was had made all those loans and then they refinanced them and then they were servicing all the loans yeah okay and they, so they were still they, around they're still around but they closed in 1951 when the last loan gets repaid they're a most unusual government agency because they close <laughs> that, that is unusual right. so they're perpetuated so, and get bigger so what happens is, is the and so I want to point out, so the FHOLC is getting a bad rap for the following reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Governments, local governments, state governments, federal governments discriminated like mad all the way into the 1930s. Okay. And so that was just standard behavior. And so the HOLC is very unusual in the following sense. The HOLC charged the same interest rate to blacks that they did to whites. The typical interest rate at the time for the average interest rate, average interest rate differential for a black compared to a white from the same type of lender was about half a percentage point, maybe 0.7%, somewhere in that neighborhood. The HLC is charging exactly the same. They give them the same loan terms. The other thing they do is they actually, in 1940, there's a housing census and they hold a, a higher share of black loans than any other category of lender. And they're holding like four and a half percent of four and a half percent of their loans are, are, are for blacks. For almost every other lender, the number is two and a half percent or below. So the HOLC actually was doing a lot to help the black community. Now they still might have discriminated in the sense, take the equal people, they might have treated them differently in some ways. Yeah. But most of the ways they treated them, they actually gave them a boon. Their big mistake was to create these maps, and everybody keeps blaming them. But we have plenty of evidence that the FHA used much more precise maps and actually were much more specific about race when they were making decisions. And they were they were making loan, they were insuring loans both before and after the HOLC. And matter of fact, they're the dominant government agency after the after 1936. Is your and, research on this ongoing? 
yes. Dr. Fishback. Yes. Uh, and have you gotten any uh, criticism, any pushback? Well, or? so we've got a couple of papers that uh, we've been presenting around the country. We've got one that's coming out in the Journal of Urban Economics that's been, you know, been vetted and things. We have a re revised and resubmit at the Journal of Economic History. But we're also doing continued work. And so what we found is, is the FHA, actually, if you actually look at the patterns of what's going on, the FHA was, was making all sorts of decisions and actually publicizing their decisions mm -hmm. before the HALC even got started on, on doing the mapping. And they had, they had information from local documents that had these property surveys, and they had block-level information on race and housing values and things like this. And so when you look at how they claim that they organize their thinking about these maps that they created, it was race and rent was the key thing that they looked at. So if your block was more than 10% black, they and you had four of those together, you group them into a spot, that's a neighborhood. And if your block had you know, rents that were lower than $10, $10 that, that's a neighborhood. And 11 to 20 and things like that. And so they're actually making all these decisions. We also have evidence that when you look at cities where the where the HLC made maps, we looked at three cities where where we actually could see what the FHA and the HLC were both doing. The FHA's behavior was the same both before and after the HLC maps were created. And so, we so independent that, of the HOLC maps, independent. And so the maps were independent, and they had other ways of doing things, and they were the ones who were actually drive, driving this for a long period. Um, so why is the HOLC? They were very careful. So they did not yeah. finance low low income loans. Yeah, you said that until much uh, until much later. So they yeah. got a lot of pressure in the nineteen late fifties and early sixties to change their behavior, and they started to change about around then. But the, the main thing I want to say about this is the HLC maps are really good as a description of what the world looked like in nineteen thirty six, but you can't you can't pin the later behavior on the HOLC for maps that were probably held conf confidential, that were held confidential. We're still learning, we're still trying to learn more about what they were doing. But also, you can't just pin it all on the federal government because zoning laws, covenants in, in, in housing contracts, just people, the, the way the police treated people who tried to move into a neighborhood, you know, all sorts of things. And so the vast majority of the cause of the segregation leading into, 1930, into the 1930s was something besides the federal government. The federal government plays a role afterwards, but not, not nearly so big as what people So think. why is there, after having listened to you explain this history, so why is there so much focus on HOLC? I mean, you can just YouTube it and, and, and because, see all well, these So different... what happens is, what happened was is that they found the HOLC stuff and everybody focused on the HOLC maps and, and they're there. And they just kept thinking that the HOLC had given the maps to the FHA and they did. And that the FHA was the primary user of the maps. But over the last three years, we've been doing a lot more digging and we discovered all the various ways that the FHA was, was, was doing things and the way that they built their own maps. And so it really raises doubts about the HLC as being, as those maps being the driving force behind segregation. I see. And, uh, That's the main point. and so there was plenty of segregation, tons of it around, and it has carried on to the, to the day. But you can't blame it on the HLC. 
I see. You have to blame it on partly on the FHA, but blame it on all sorts of other factors in society that that contribute. Multifarious, you know, factors out there. That right, a lot of local it. government activity. Yeah, you know, there there are examples like one city moved their their black school to a different part of town to try to make sure that all the blacks stayed in that part of town. Oh, what you know, state so was that in? Weird stuff, you know, and, and it's just insane. And in, in some of the things that they do. Um, in the in the last thirty seconds we have left uh, of our conversation, uh, you know, I know there are social costs to real estate booms and busts, and we, we you know, segregation uh, is one of them. Um, are there are there other categories or trends of social impact of real estate market cycles that are being studied? Uh, in, oh yeah. Yeah. Like on elderly, I don't know what what, what are they? Yeah, I'm just okay. wondering. So the real estate, I mean, they have whole real estate departments. <laughs> so <laughs> at universities, so not large number of business schools actually have real estate uh, departments that kind of they sometimes work in conjunction with finance or with economics. And so there are all sorts of different aspects of the real estate markets that people are looking at. But no, I mean, real estate. I mean, if you think about it, people's homes are a huge part of their wealth for most people. Oh yeah, sometimes the main. That's how we retire, yeah. man. In fact, the, 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 fact, now we've become much more involved in stock markets with four hundred one ks and IRAs and all sorts of things like that. So people are more sophisticated financially than they ever were in the past. But mm -hmm. they're still lacking financial sophistication as well. I've got a number of friends who, who work on that issue in particular. Uh, the Wharton School actually is, is big on doing those kind of things. Wharton uh, School. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so this is a huge form of wealth or whatever. And, and the, the fact that the black ownership rate is so much lower than the white ownership rate is one of the reasons why, why wealth differences are so large. Yeah. So it's yeah. one of the signals that there are substantial wealth differences. And so we still need to find ways to, that's, that's why even the Republicans, wherever, under Bush, were pushing for the ownership society because they felt like you know, you, you, the only way you can develop wealth is to invest in assets and, and housing is a substantial part of, of people's wealth. And so helping people make that transition and getting the benefit of compound interest and things like that is, is, a, is a big help. And we're still facing problems getting people to think about how to save and invest, invest effectively. Uh, and one of, one of the problems has been is the interest rates have been so low. Um, but in general, you want people not only just working, but also investing in and having assets that they can. And, and the key takeaway after we look at the cycles of booms and busts is to be a long-term investor in real estate, like Warren Buff Buffett is with uh, with stocks. Professor yeah. Fishback, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. Uh, and to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history. 
the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>